thank you for joining us for the second installment of Ropes and Gray's alumni podcast. My name is Megan Baca. I am a partner in our strategic transactions group here at Ropes and Gray. I reside in our Silicon Valley office in California, and I'm delighted to have Sabrina Ross here today. She's a friend and Ropes and Gray alum from our IP transactions practice. And I feel so lucky that we've stayed in touch since Sabrina left Ropes and Gray. And I've been so excited to watch her incredibly interesting career path unfold since leaving Ropes. Sabrina is currently the global head of policy for ride sharing at Uber. And on this podcast today, we're gonna to hear about Sabrina's career path, her current role at Uber, pros and cons and challenges of being in-house and changes from her former big law life, um, as well as hearing about some favorite memories at Ropes and Gray. So let's dig in. Um, so Sabrina, love if you could introduce yourself in particular. Tell us about your steps since leaving Ropes and your path to your current role here today. Yeah, well, first of all, Megan, thanks for having me. It's um, such a joy to be here uh, and to see your face as always. Um, so I guess uh, my path to Uber, I would start by saying that leaving Ropes was one of the more agonizing moments of my career. I had spent five years thinking about whether it made sense to go in-house. Um, for my field of privacy law, I felt like there were some really interesting opportunities of practicing that in-house. Um, so when Apple called and offered me sort of like my dream role in-house, I was like, oh, I can't say no to this, but I was also really sad to leave. So um, I went over to Apple's privacy legal team and then when Uber called um, shortly, a little more than a year after that, to offer me a chance to build out their nascent privacy team, as well as a marketing and advertising legal team, and then kind of a regulatory investigations team, I couldn't say no. So I went over to Uber, I guess that would have been like 2015, um, and basically have spent four plus years there. Although, as you know, after I had my first baby, um, I did take about a year away and did my own sort of privacy consulting, um, but went back to Uber, I guess, almost a year ago now. Got it. Got it. Um, so let's pause there on that one year um, <laughs> yeah. interim, it's basically hanging out your own shingle in some ways. Um, what are some of the pros and cons about that that year? I'm sure it was a little bit of a, of a risk jumping yeah. out there. Yeah. Well, so... Um, First of all, I did it as I was also becoming a new mom. So it was just a whirlwind year. And I chose my timing well, I guess, because it was right as GDPR was about to go into effect. So literally, companies could not find privacy counsel fast enough. And so um, it, I think pros and cons, it was incredibly empowering um, to, it was sort of easy. Like I didn't do a lot of marketing. I just sort of told a few friends I was doing it and work came in and that was really interesting to see kind of how it worked. Um, lots of people, particularly women, were really generous in their time who had had their own um, shingle for a while of telling me like how to set up and sort of some of the logistics of it. So that was great. Um, Malpractice insurance, don't you have to do all that all yourself? Of, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what kind of an wild. entity do you want? I mean, you remember, that's not my, I don't know anything about <laughs> entity formation. So I was like learning a lot on the fly, which I, you know, I kind of liked. I would say there were, um, so, so favorite things, it was empowering. I loved picking my clients, like choosing who I worked with and saying yes to projects I thought was fun, were fun. Um, downsides to, um, 
it was a little lonely. I love being part of a team. And so that I kind of missed having a real team with me. Um, and at the same time, I didn't feel ready to be like growing a full team, like hiring. And I wasn't, I just didn't want that much overhead. Um, and I didn't love some of the business aspects, like just learning how to do billing on my own. Like I was like, ropes, come teach me how to do this. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So, so did Uber call you back? You joined them again after that stint? Yeah, so I had been doing that for um, probably only like maybe nine months um, and some friends at Uber um, called and said basically we created this role for you. It's You can sort of make of it what you want and build out like an ethical technology practice, um, still working with a lot of my favorite people and favorite product executives. And so again, it felt just really hard to say no. I had been interested in the policy space for a while and indeed had been doing a little bit of sort of more pure policy work when I was consulting. So over the next six months after that, I started half time with Uber while I wound down my consulting practice and, and went back in. Got it. And so in your current role, tell us about what that entails for you. Yes. So running policy for Uber's ride-sharing marketplace, um, as I alluded to, includes sort of half internal-facing work and half external, maybe, if I had to break it down. So building out ethical technology practices, whether it's fairness in machine learning or um, a principled approach to marketplace governance, sort of working with product leadership on that. Um, but then a bunch of my time is also spent with the World Economic Forum or the UN or others who are working in this space around how do companies do this well and sort of um, the sort of how do you get to a rising tide lifts all boats um, across industry. Um, so that's roughly what I spend my time on. So if one reads the headlines over the last, say, you know, four or five years, um, you know, there's been a lot going on at Uber and a lot of change. Um, how has that affected your job over the over the years and how would you advise other lawyers kind of experiencing you know tumultuous times or difficult times at companies and maybe you know eventually for the better making it in making that opportunity into an opportunity to grow their own role into something mm -hmm. that is really the best for them. Yeah um, I love that question so I would say being in-house in general is more turbulent and political than being at a law firm, especially a collegial uh, place like Ropes. So Uber is an extreme example of that where you particularly see it um, in the headlines. But to be very honest, I would say Apple and a startup named Nato I worked with had sort of similar levels of, you just didn't see it reflected in the press quite as much. Um, I think someone told me recently that LinkedIn similarly had all of their executives turn over at one point within about a year. So A, it's not uncommon, and I would say if you're going to go in-house, sort of be aware of that and think about how that fits with your personality. Um, advice for weathering change, um, this is hard, but, and I guess I've had an opportunity to learn it several times over at Uber, because Uber, as you say, has had a lot of change. I would say stay... Um, clear-eyed and calm to the extent that you can. So um, everyone, and that's kind of a lawyer skill, right? Yeah, like staying calm, calm and, <laughs> um, you know, if everyone around you is feeling sort of insecure and uncertain and you're the person who just remains pretty calm about it, I think that A is to your benefit. Um, 
you know, the clear-eyed piece is like, do be clear about what will work for you and what won't. I mean, it may be that there's such a change that you don't think it's great for you and sort of thinking through in advance um, what that is, is certainly is certainly useful. Um, the, the last thing I guess I would say about that is that a strong relationship with your business partner is going to be really helpful to you in times of a lot of change. So that not only in the good times, like helping you get a major promotion, but in in bad times, if for whatever reason you're not going to get what you need from your leadership chain because they are under a lot of political stress, someone else can sort of um, come in and be a solid voice for you. I guess I would say to that end, managing executives is kind of an art. And so, <laughs> um, you know, really put yourself in their shoes about what they're interested in. And that way you can sort of anticipate what kinds of like answers and support you need to give them. Mm-hmm. So besides putting yourself in their shoes, any other tips for managing tricky executive teams? Oh man. Um, I guess more generally too, moving from a law firm where you work with lawyers all the yeah. time and most of our clients are lawyers as well and then you jump into a world where you're working with sales and finance and technology engineers you know across so many different um, areas of the organization um, the executives maybe are coming from different walks of life as well I guess yeah. broadening the question to other personality types like how, how have you gotten used to interacting with the non-lawyers yeah. yeah so to me this is a lot about um reading a room because you will have executives who are sort of like a lawyer client who want the detail like they they might want to see the legal memo um and then you have other executives who want they basically just want the answer and they will be sort of annoyed if you try to slow down with a lot of the reasoning um so so reading the room figuring out uh, like what what level of of detail they want and they'll also have questions at a law firm very rarely was i asked to um put a monetary figure for example to the to a different set of choices and you know now i do that all the time if we take path a the downside risk is this if we take path b the downside risk is that and same on the upside so just learning the types of questions that they're going to ask that are not as core to the like bread and butter legal analysis. Mm-hmm. That is so interesting. That's definitely a new skill that you don't <laughs> learn here. Um, so let's talk about moving from big law into um, in the in-house world. What are some of the biggest challenges? I mean, learning these personality types is one, but um, what else has been interesting or a growth curve or difficult for you? Um, yeah, I remember you hosted or Ropes hosted a dinner like two years back, I think for new in-house counsel. And I still remember sort of the vibrant discussion we had about this. Um, so I guess I would say three things about, I, they're challenges, but they're also sort of joyful challenges. Like they're some of the fun areas of learning. One is exactly what you referred to is like you have many more stakeholders to manage and sort of just learning very quickly what do those stakeholders want and need. Um, the other one is that typically you're the decision maker on most decisions in your day. And so whereas as an associate at a law firm, you know, maybe you're sort of the architect of something and a partner approves it on the way out the door, but then the client ultimately usually decides when you're in-house, I feel like I'm making at least five major substantive decisions a day and getting comfortable with that. Um, and then lastly is that, um, 
risk tolerance has varied for me, both among my individual managers and a, a sort of in company culture. And so with one manager, you might bring them a recommendation and they would say like, this is, you know, you spent too much time researching this. You should have made the decision faster. Mm-hmm. And another manager might say, um, whoa, this is a really big deal for our company. Let's slow down and get a second law firm's opinion. You know, so just, again, getting used to really different styles of approaching problems. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, so backing up to the ropes and gray uh, days, um, can you tell us how you, you know, ended up at ropes, how you have ended up choosing ropes and also your practice group decision, your, you know, getting into privacy, how that all evolved? Yes. So I guess I'll take them in reverse because I um, fell into privacy law in 2009 when I graduated, um, sort of by luck. I went to Sidley Austin in D.C. first, um, and there was an amazing partner there named Ed McNicholas, who is now at Ropes. Um, and I just fell in love with sort of the how quickly that area of the law was changing, what the, the variety of work that comes across your desk. Um, and so I fell into privacy. And then after doing that for a couple of years at Sidley, um, Sidley at the time was not particularly strong on transactional privacy. So the bread and butter of you know negotiating contracts uh, with with uh, customers or partners, and Ropes was really strong in that area. Um, and at the time, I think was looking to sort of build out other parts that are more like privacy compliance counseling. So it was an amazing opportunity for me to come learn more about privacy transactions. Um, at the time, I think you and Jim DeGraw were looking for somebody kind of mid-level, and so it was. It felt like a, a really easy choice. That's great. And now Ed is here. He's yes. he's fantastic. So it's kind of full circle. It's funny. Any favorite ropes and gray memories of being here? Well, so my favorite one, which you can cut from this podcast if you decide, <laughs> uh, might be the time that I came to the Palo Alto office because I was based in San Francisco. And you were wearing like a full-on business suit, uh, but hiking boots because you were getting ready to go hike in Machu Picchu. Um, and I was just like, this is such a perfect like physical embodiment of like so professional, but also has a personal life. That's hilarious. I forgot about that. Um, so what um, attorneys stand out to you? I mean, you have so many phenomenal folks here. Um, and I think that like that's one of the wonderful opportunities of of being at a place like Ropes is just the network that you build. But um, any any memories of particular people that stand out in your mind? Yeah. So um, Jim Jim DeGraw, who I mentioned earlier, and Ed Black, both of whom I felt were really sort of managed to be relentlessly excellent, but also real humans. I still remember that Jim would come by my office every morning and ask how I was, like he really meant it. <laughs> um, and that that was sort of a picture of like, this is the kind of lawyer I want to be, um, and sort of that that melding. And same at the time, I think you were a very senior associate, which is a notoriously sort of stressful time in law firm life. I think you were also um, getting close to being a new mom, and yet you mm-hmm. were still like generous in mentoring younger associates. And and again, I was like, this is a model that I can see myself living in. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's great. How did Ropes um, prepare you for the future career path that you had, which was, you know, has been really interesting in a couple of different organizations and on your own. Um, how did it, you know, has the training really panned out for you or other sorts of skills that you've picked up here? What's been the most important? 
Yeah. So I guess there's some like hard skills and soft skills. Uh, The hard skill, which I mentioned, was transactional privacy, which um, when I was interviewing to go in-house, each company kept telling me, we want you to have more transactional privacy. And I still use it, you know, very regularly. Um, And again, like you taught, you also taught me some about other kinds of transactions, which was kind of helpful context to have, because again, I just, that hadn't been part of my first few years of lawyering. Um, in the sort of softer skill set, I think just um, sort of efficiency and collegiality and things that I come back to all the time as like a core part of how I practice. And when, as it's become more common for companies to hire like straight out of law school or sort of earlier in their in their growth as a lawyer, Sometimes people will come to me and say, now I'm thinking of actually going to a law firm I haven't been before, but I feel like I want more of that rigorous legal training. And I always say, absolutely, do it. Um, you get great training of the following kinds. So That's great. So for those, for those folks who do start out in big law and are looking to move in-house, uh, what advice do you have to both kind of take advantage of the time they have at big, in big law and then what to think about when you're moving to an outside opportunity because I, I do think that similar to recruiting into a law firm it's very difficult from the outside to discern the differences between different companies different legal groups different legal roles um, so what's your advice for making sure you're jumping into a really great opportunity and not one that you'll you know that won't be an improvement on your current situation Yeah. Well, so to your first question about, I think you said something like maximizing your time. Just at a law firm, you get to work with so many different people and different kinds of companies and different kinds of partners. And I would say um, take advantage of that because once you're in-house, you sort of can be susceptible to this like tunnel vision of the company or tunnel vision of your particular manager. So um, I I felt very lucky to work with a variety of companies and people, and that helps you suss out what you like and what you don't like. Um, if you decide that you're going to go in-house, um, I would say talk to at least, I don't know, five in-house counsel because there is such a variety, as you say, of um, cultures, management styles, approaches to budget, um, and you have less choice once you're there. You're kind of locked into that company's approach, more or less. Um, And so uh, really get people's honest, talk to people who will give you honest feedback about the pros and cons of their company. That's great advice. Um, And in your role now, I assume you work with a variety of outside counsel. So it's always interesting to me to ask the question of, you know, what makes for really great outside counsel? What causes problems for you with outside counsel or that folks can do better um, mm-hmm. just because I know we are all always trying to improve on what we do and make sure we're meeting our clients needs yeah so I just did a whole panel on this with the ABA so I could go go on for an hour but I won't <laughs> um, I would say um, there's a couple of basic things like ensuring that you can meet your client where they are in terms of technology I'm embarrassed to say this but like Honestly, being able to use Google Docs or Zoom or whatever makes sort of the speed and efficiency on their side work uh, is invaluable and I think continues to be, can, can be challenging. Um, and then if your client isn't telling you what they want clearly, ask a lot of questions. Um, I think I love, I love um, folks who just ask 
so is it a deck that you want or a memo? Because again, the in, the deliverable might be going to a variety of stakeholders in-house and really just getting that right. I've also had firms ask for feedback after the fact, which I think is really effective. You know, recently a partner I worked with asked if she could um, request feedback from an executive we had prepared for a depot together for feedback on the depot prep. And I was like, sure. And he gave her like a long, thoughtful response, um, most of which was really good, but then a few like little small bits of uh, feedback. And that shows, A, how much he values her like as a partner, uh, that he took the time to do that and helped sort of, helped her move from, you know, great to like excellent in terms of knowing how execs like to be prepped on this particular thing. That's great. So yeah. it sounds like knowing knowing the business and knowing the technology, being a good listener, mm-hmm. and asking for feedback. That's a great tip, actually, that I hadn't really um, thought too much about. So that that's great. All right. So now, um, to wrap things up, I have some unscripted questions. Oh, all right. All right. And it's a lightning round. So quick answers off the top of your head. Tell me what your ideal vacation would be. Oh, I just got back from Vancouver Island where we spent five days essentially eating and kayaking. Mm. And it turns out, those who can't see me, I'm eight months pregnant, but it turns out <laughs> that, that spending time just kayaking and eating was good for that That phase. sounds amazing. <laughs> amazing. Okay, if you had to eat one food every day, speaking of eating, what would it be? Um, probably my husband's homemade soups. Mm. And if you had three hours of kid-free, husband-free, work-free, <laughs> obligation-free time, what what would you do? Oh, Megan. Talk don't. about hypotheticals. Yeah, don't tease me. <laughs> um, I'd probably just go uh, roam around a part of the city that I haven't been to for a long time and um, stop in slowly anywhere I wanted. That sounds amazing. Uh, if you weren't a practicing attorney, what would you be? Well, interestingly, at the moment, I'm not practicing as, a, as an mm. attorney. So maybe I'm living that dream there of doing are. policy. Yeah. There you are. Ropes and Gray is fill in the blank. Delightful. Aw. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps us up. So um, thank you, Sabrina, for joining us. This has been really fun. Um, as you know, we have, we really, really value our alumni community here at Ropes and Gray and hearing about what our alums are doing out there in the world with their phenomenal career development is so exciting. So for any alumni listening, obviously just you know stay in touch and visit us at alumni.ropesgray.com to, to stay up to date on all things alumni news, firm news, things going on with lawyers at the firm. So thank you so much for listening and join us for the next installment.